My guest today is distinguished professor in two departments at UCI, in the departments of psychology and social behavior, and also criminology, law, and society, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. She's the author of 23 books and over 500 scientific articles. Her research has focused on human memory, eyewitness testimony, and also courtroom procedure. She has been an expert witness and or consultant on some of the most sensational legal cases over the last 40 plus years, including O.J. Simpson, Rodney King, the Menendez brothers, and the Bosnian war trials in The Hague, and many, many more. In a study published by the Review of General Psychology, the study identified the top 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century, which included Freud and Skinner. Elizabeth Loftus was number 58, the top woman ranked on the list. Welcome, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm fine. Good day. Fantastic. Can you please give us a brief overview of what your expertise is so people at UCI can get to know you more? Well, first of all, I study memory, but I don't study the kind of memory that most people think of. If I meet somebody on an airplane and I tell them I study memory, then they want to tell me that they have a relative with Alzheimer's or that they're forgetting things lately. But I study the opposite. I study when people remember things that didn't happen. So I study false memories. How prevalent is that? Can we trust any of our memories or is it like, yes, there's a small part or is it 50-50? Can you elaborate on that? One thing you have to realize is that memory is not just a replay of a recording. You don't just record the experience and then play it back like a video camera would work. It's much more complex and actually it involves a lot of construction and reconstruction. So we're always reconstructing the past and when we do that we sometimes take bits and pieces of experience that we might have picked up at some other time or some other place and it's really not possible to answer an overall question like how much of our memory is true and how much is false. All I can say is there are lots of pieces of fiction sprinkled throughout that vast store of memory that we have. It's very interesting. Is it somewhat like, I was just self-analyzing recently how when you have an event last week, much of it I can remember pretty accurately as opposed to 40 years ago or 20 years ago when there are certain things I vividly remember, but yet there are things that I experienced at the time I would have really remembered it, but now I can barely remember what was I, if somebody said, oh, well, you were there, da, 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 I'm like, I don't recall. I would say you're normal. (laughs) I would say you're very normal. And so what people do when they are trying to recall the past because they want to share a story with someone else or because they have to testify in court or whatever they're using memory for, they are constructing with bits and pieces. Or they might be remembering the story that they told the last time and figuring out how to tell it again. When you initially got interested in this area... Were there people already doing research in that area and you're like, wow, this is really interesting. I want to be involved with this. Or were you on the front lines of the early study of that? When I first started studying memory, I was doing very theoretical work. I was studying something called semantic memory. I was in graduate school and I was studying memory. at, At Stanford? Yeah, I was at Stanford. And I was working with a professor on people's memories for words and concepts, your kind of knowledge of the world, your knowledge that Sacramento is the capital of California, for example, that kind of memory. And at some point I thought, I really want to do some work that has more obvious practical implication. 
well, what would that be? What would that be? And I was now out of graduate school. I had this expertise in this theoretical aspect of memory. I've always been interested in legal cases. I find them fascinating. And so it was a natural marriage of an expertise and an interest to study the memory of witnesses to crimes, accidents, and other legally relevant events. And that's what I began to do. And hardly anybody was doing anything like that at the time. As you were into that for perhaps maybe the first 10 years or so, how have things evolved? Were your basic impressions and and knowledge over the first 10 years, has it evolved? Is it different now than it was then? Or is it just an accumulation of knowledge? One thing I did once I developed this paradigm for studying memory, which is now called the misinformation paradigm, where we would expose our witnesses to an event, uh, then we would suggest some misleading information to them, and then we would try to tap into their memory for what they remember about the event so that we could see how the misleading information affected their memory. I then posed a number of questions about this phenomenon. For example, what are the conditions under which we are especially susceptible to misinformation? Or which kinds of people are especially susceptible? We would find that young children, for example, were much more susceptible than older children and and adults. We posed the question of once I contaminate your memory and make you believe something different, what happened to the original information that was once stored in your memory? Did I destroy it? Did I just cover it up and maybe I could find it one day? So these were some of the scientific questions that I and others would ask about this phenomenon now called the misinformation effect. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is that this kind of work, using this kind of paradigm, it is now going on in many, many other parts of the world in scientific laboratories. So uh, that means that there, there are all these smart people out there uh, learning things about a phenomenon that I care about. Interesting. How about, as an offshoot from that, repressed memory? I know you've done a lot of work in that area. Can you comment on that? Yes. So it was the around the early 1990s when I would see my very first case where there was an allegation of repressed memory. A woman who accused her father of committing a murder 20 years earlier, accused her father of years of sexual abuse and even other murders that were allegedly repressed into her unconscious until something happened that made her aware of them. When I was a consultant, and ultimately an expert witness on the court case arising from these accusations, I did some research and was shocked to find that there really is no credible scientific support for this notion of massive repression. So I then wanted to study, well, if these memories aren't real that she is claiming, these are really big memories. She had memories of seeing her father commit a murder. And I looked for a different kind of paradigm to develop that could simulate that kind of situation where we would plant what we now call a rich false memory in the minds of ordinary people. 
and we devised some methods for doing that. And so I then began doing a series of studies on rich false memories that showed that we could make people believe that they were lost in a shopping mall and that frightened and crying, that they witnessed somebody being demonically possessed as a child. Other investigators used our methods and planted a false memory that as a child you were attacked by a vicious animal or that you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. All of these produced through the power of suggestion. If you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is UCI psychology and law professor Elizabeth Loftus. One of your most well-known activities has been your TED Talk. Have you done more than one TED Talk? I did a TED Talk for TED Global. It was in 2013. It was in Scotland. It was a lot of work. Even though I had been a faculty member for many decades, teaching at UC Irvine for, uh, by then, at least a decade, to prepare a TED Talk, even if it's only 16 minutes that you have to memorize, is a tremendous amount of work. Everything has to be perfect. Not what we have to do when we go into a classroom and we can say um or er or make mistakes or lose our train of thought and come back. Everything needs to be just about perfect. So it was a lot of work. And after I did that TED Talk, I got asked by a couple of organizations to do a TED Talk for them. One was in Orange County and one was at the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And I said, I am not preparing a new TED Talk. If you want me to do something like I did in Scotland, I'm happy to do it for you. So I've actually given a couple of TEDx talks, but they're heavily drawing on the TED Global talk that I originally gave. And when you say TED Global, is that the TED talk that we know of, the big stage TED talk, or does that TED Global mean something else? Well, there are two main TED venues. There's the domestic one that used to be in California. They actually moved it to Vancouver, Canada. Then there's the global one that moves around. It was in Scotland the year I did it. And those are the big TED Talks. There's no X there. It's TED. And is that like the TED Talk for the year? That year it was in Scotland? or Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. That year TED Global was in Scotland. Gotcha. Did they say, hey, this is going to be your A plus? You know, you said there's a lot of pressure. You know, you want to cut the ums and ahs out. Did you realize that there's going to be a live audience? There's no cuts and retakes and so forth. What create Process? What what created the pressure? Or did you just realize, boy, this is going to get a lot of exposure and I want to be at my top of my game? I... I'm not sure when and how or where all along I felt the pressure. But first you get the invitation, then you write a script, you run your script by them, they tell you it's too long and you have to cut it down. At some point there was a Skype-type practice uh, talk. At this point I'm still reading it because I haven't memorized it yet. And over the next many months I would give it to a tree or the mirror or if I was invited to give a guest lecture by a colleague at UCI I would give it in the class and I was starting to try to memorize it and then by the time June rolled around and I showed up in Scotland then there's a kind of like a dress rehearsal where you actually give it and then there's the actual day. I did not know at the time that they can actually edit and will edit because, and I witnessed this, it was frightening. I witnessed another speaker 
freeze and completely lose her train of thought. Wow. And I felt so sorry for her. Um, and it's an awful thing to watch. But they edited her talk down and you would never know. And I had no idea that, I, I wasn't sure I knew then that it would be translated into all these different languages. So it's every word is there, but also that I would end up with three and a half million views. Were you totally happy with the experience? You would recommend it for anybody? Well, let's start. How about Um, those two? (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm not totally happy. After my TED Talks, there were, I would sometimes read comments and many of them were fine and, and flattering and so on. But every now and then somebody would write something nasty like, her voice is so screechy it irritates me or so, you know, something like that. I am certainly happy since I have been on a mission to reach people with a message that I can give a class at a university to a seminar of 15 or an undergraduate class of 40 or when I used to teach a survey class I could have 150 at a time. But here you do this and you can reach so many people with a message. So I love the concept of the TED Talks and their ability to reach. Since you've done the TED Talk and you talked a little bit about what's happened since, any other surprises that have happened since you did that TED Talk? Anything that changed for you since you did it? You can never know, actually. I do have people call me every week wanting something, every week. It's not just lawyers who want me to work on cases or police or law enforcement or lawyers who want me to speak at their conferences or universities that want me to come and give a talk at their university or high school students that want help with a project or elementary school students that are doing a science project. (laughs) And I know that many of them have seen the TED Talk, but I cannot tell you whether that is what prompted the invitation. But I do think it has led or helped contribute to a variety of invitations that give me choice and create interesting experiences for me. I mean, even just this year, for example, I'm going to Argentina, where I've never been, to give a talk, and Berlin on a separate occasion, and the Netherlands separately. And so these are wonderful invitations that arise, perhaps in part, out of the publicity about this research. Mm -hmm. What are you currently working on? I can't imagine it's the same old, same old. Is there a new area or within your areas? Can you speak about that? I'll give you one example of something that we've done lately that we haven't written a whole lot about. It's something that we call memory blindness that I have worked on with a number of my graduate students here at UCI. And memory blindness is this idea that I can tell you, Kevin, here's what you told me in the past about some event that you experienced. And you look this over, but it contains erroneous information. I'm telling you that you told me something that you didn't really tell me. So the question is, are you going to even detect that there's something wrong with that information? Or are you just going to not detect and kind of accept it? And then will that become your memory? Mm. And we have found that In our experiments on memory blindness, where we go to people and say, here's what you told us before, many times they do not detect that there is something wrong with that information, and then they adopt it and it becomes their memory. 
And I'll tell you the kind of real-world situations that I think this is important for. Witness goes to a police station. A police officer writes out the statement of what the witness said and said, okay, I've written out what you told me. Just look this over and sign your name at the bottom. There could be some errors in there. And this suggests that people might not detect those errors and might actually be influenced by them. Also, I've been thinking about fact checkers because I do a fair amount of interviewing for magazines and newspaper interviews. And sometimes there's usually it'd be the magazine articles because newspapers, it's so fast. But uh, I'll get a call, a fact checker. Or here's what the, uh, the writer said that you told her. Well, what if there's a mistake in that? Am I going to catch it and correct it? Or am I going to just not catch it, accept it, and then own it? Now, do you have a lab that, yes. when you're working with grad students? And so yeah, on? right across the hall oh. is a big room where we meet and satellite rooms where we run subjects. One room we can run a group of subjects, another room we can run one or two subjects. And I love having the grad students right across the hall. How many students are you working with at a time? Well, I might have six or seven graduate students that I'm working with. They then have undergraduate research assistants who are working with them on various projects or working with them and me because we're in some sense working together. And there may be 15 of those in any one quarter. Those are the students who are often honor students or they're going to be presenting at UROP, the Undergraduate Research Opportunities Program. That constitutes the lab. Gotcha. You're listening to UCI Psychology and Law Professor Elizabeth Loftus on UCI Conversations. You've had a remarkable career. Could you ever have predicted this in your wildest dreams? Would you, are you surprised? I have to say, I sure am surprised compared to the Beth Fishman who was a senior at UCLA and thinking about what am I going to do in the future, what will be with me, and I thought I would maybe go to grad school but get married and be the wife of someone. And I did go to graduate school. I did get married and I was (laughs) for a while the wife of someone. But no, I never thought that I would be having this kind of career where I get to be a scientist, I get to make scientific discoveries that hopefully will last for a long time, I get to apply them to solving real-world problems, I get to work on court cases that involve many people who are important to me that you would have never heard of, but also cases of people that are fascinating, and I've actually gotten to meet Martha Stewart or even Ted Bundy or the Oklahoma bomber, all kinds of other people. You've worked with an amazing amount of people. Ted Bundy did catch my eye, so you you did meet him. He's a notorious mass murderer, or he murdered a, a lot of people. Can you say any impressions of him? Well, first of all, when I met Ted Bundy, we didn't know he was Ted Bundy. His name, the person who case I was involved in, consulting on and would testify in, was named Ted Bundy. He was a law student at the University of Utah, and he was arrested and and tried for an aggravated kidnapping back in the 1970s. There was speculation, could this be the same person who, but he had not yet escaped. He had not yet ended up in Florida killing all those students. We didn't know who he was. And when I met him, I saw a first-year law student who was 
very handsome and charming in the courtroom, and he was ultimately convicted of that aggravated kidnapping by the judge, and then he would be sent to Colorado to stand trial for a different crime there, ultimately escape from the jail and end up in Florida, and the rest is history. In your career, did you have a significant woman who inspired you or made you see something in yourself that you might not have seen or, you know, a mentor type? Well, first of all, I, as an undergraduate, I majored in mathematics and also, and also in psychology. And in my math classes, there was all male. I'm not sure I remember even a female in the psych department. When I got to Stanford to grad school, there was only one tenured regular faculty member, Eleanor McAbee, a very famous developmental psychologist, but I would not spend much time with her because I was a cognitive psychologist and not developmental, and I hung out with the mathematical psychologists, for example. So I would not say that it was women mentors at that point. Uh, Later on, I would have a job as an assistant professor where I developed a close friendship with the chair of the department, who was a woman, a perception psychologist named Arian Mack. And she was not a mentor in the sense of the actual scientific work the methods and the analysis and so on, but just in terms of being a a kind of wonderful role model for how a woman could be a scientist and a, a friend and a fun person. Excellent. Knowing what you know now and looking back early in your career, even when you're a college student, would there be anything, any advice you'd give to yourself or to others? I mean, one thing that might be a bit of advice is that I got here despite my share of tragedies. My mother drowned when I was 14. Our family house burned down when I was 16. My favorite aunt died of a heart attack soon after that. I had another favorite aunt who died of myasthenia gravis. There were serious tragedies, and it doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to... You can overcome it, and one of the things that I have found, actually, this is kind of strange, but if I'm miserable about something, if I'm, and with the attacks on me for this work and people who are not happy with the findings and lash out and are hostile, I can always work on a court case because when I'm working on these court cases, someone's in big trouble and their trouble is a lot bigger than mine. So in a way, it takes me away from my own problems and lets me focus on somebody else's. Very good. I did note at the end of your TED Talk where you said there was an interesting quote, memory like liberty is a fragile thing. And I was wondering, was that something that you were working on the whole time? You knew that was going to be the end of your speech? Or when did that appear in your speech? Uh, Or do you even remember it? I believe I used that line before because I've been talking about wrongful convictions. I've been talking about the fact that faulty memory is one of the, if not the, major cause of wrongful convictions in our society. And I think that quote came out of that sort of thinking, and I brought it in to end the TED Talk that way. So it was in your speech for quite a while. Right. What do you do in your spare time? We only have a minute or so left. I like my favorite thing to do. I usually like working, getting in a bunch of hours, and, and then socializing with friends, going, you know, we have wine and appetizers and conversation, and that's kind of what my favorite thing to do. 
and we're coming up on the springtime and, and the summer. Any vacation plans? Are you thinking like along those lines yet? I don't take vacations, no. I, but first of all, just this year, I'll be taking a trip to Germany. Well, England uh, in, in May and Germany in June and Argentina in October and the Netherlands in November. So when I take these trips, I sometimes will take an extra day or maybe two days if I have time to do some sightseeing. That's enough vacation for me. I don't need any more than that. Dr. Loftus, thank you so much for being with us and giving insights into your expertise. And we hope to have you again on UCI Conversations. It's been a pleasure. Okay, my pleasure.